But we're looking at Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah, the greatest, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And we're looking at Isaiah in this, uh, this summer from chapters 1 through 39. And then in the fall in uh, chapters 40 through 66. And from beginning to end of the book of Isaiah, there is this strong theme that uh, Isaiah keeps drawing out of a contrast between uh, what I mentioned earlier, the kingdom of God and then the empire. And, um, you know, if you can think of a better word for it, go ahead. But I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Um, I like to call it empire. It's basically a word to describe kind of the human takeover of this planet with the help of an, an, an evil archangel. That's the way the Bible sees things that... Um, that the, the world has been taken over by this dark power. Humans have joined in the rebellion, um, the treason, the mutiny. Um, and then God begins this rebellion uh, called the kingdom of God. And, and Isaiah definitely sees this, um, this rift. You know, it's, a, it's like a fault line. And it's much deeper than things we see today. We think of Republican versus Democrat. And I'm not saying there aren't differences there. Clearly they are, you know, liberal, conservative, or capitalist, communist. Um, you know, used to it was, uh, it was either you were, you were pro-communist uh, or, you know, you were pro-America. Um, there have always been these different fault lines people have seen in world history. But, but Isaiah would say, no, there's this very simple battle going on between these two sides. And maybe sometimes, you know, the kingdom is part of the Democrats and then sometimes part of the Republicans or a Republican is part of the kingdom. Another Republican is part of the empire, you know, vice versa with the Democrats. But this is the real dividing line between people. And um, it's, it's the humble reign of God which has come into the world where the world is, is, is being ruled by this proud, uh, arrogant dictatorship. So um, Isaiah saw that very clearly in his own day. Um, he saw that um, face-to-face with the Assyrian Empire, which was the, you know, at that time, that was the instantiation of the empire in that day. Today, it would obviously not be the Assyrian Empire. But in that day, in 701 BC, Isaiah was standing on the top of the walls of Jerusalem, and he was looking out, and there was this Assyrian guy who was like a, he was like a professional Mocker. He was uh, someone that was hired. Uh, it was a very good rhetorician. And his job was simply to humiliate verbally the opponent. And so this professional mocker came out. And this is from Isaiah 36 and 37. These are the words he said. He said a lot more than this. But this professional mocker said things like, he said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me. And I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to set riders on them. So you can hear the mockery. The Assyrian is intimidating the people of Jerusalem inside the walls. He says, can you repulse even a single captain among the least of my master's servants? Beware lest you say the Lord will deliver us. Has any God of any nation delivered his land from the king of Assyria. Where are the gods of Hamath? What makes you think your Lord will deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So this is what Isaiah is hearing and seeing. And meanwhile, there's this massive army out there of Assyrians, over 100,000. But in the face of that pride and that arrogance that he sees in the Assyrian army and this professional mocker, this is what Isaiah writes. 
in verse 33. It's kind of an in-your-face prophetic word to Assyria. He says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels and of, of Assyria. You could add of Assyria or of the empire in general. He will lop off the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. That's Isaiah's sure prediction of what's going to happen to this arrogant empire. And the Bible calls this good news. I mean, you saw some of the language in this passage seems a little scary about what what this future uh, coming king is going to do to the wicked. Um, It sounds overly violent. Some of you are kind of turned off by that language. Um, But the Bible would say this is good news that the the empire is going to fall, that that the um, the kingdom is going to sprout up in the ruins of the empire. And you see that in, in verse one of chapter 11. So in the midst of this you know, field of stumps, basically, that Isaiah is picturing, where the, uh, the mighty have been brought down, hewn down, brought low, lopped off, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then eventually, amazingly, the kingdom's going to spread everywhere. Verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And Holy Mountain's a word for Jerusalem. So he's picturing Jerusalem at a time when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the time when this great king comes and fully brings the kingdom. So this is what we're dealing with in this passage. The, the kingdom of God that is coming into the empire that Isaiah sees right in front of him. So those two things, the, the empire... And then the kingdom. And those of you who have been here a long time, I know you've heard this again and again and again. But it's simply there. It's in the scripture. And so it's a, it's a good dichotomy. So in Isaiah 9.9, this is a few chapters earlier. Listen to the way that he describes the empire. He says, she speaks in pride and arrogance of heart. And again, he's talking about the Assyrians. He could have been talking about the Egyptians before them. He could have been talking about the Babylonians after them. He could have been talking about the Persians or the the Greeks or the Roman Empire or the British Empire, on and on and on. Uh, She speaks in pride and arrogance of heart. Now, when you think about pride and arrogance, um, these are the things that the Bible describes uh, uh, the worst of sins. Uh, It's not sexual sin. It's not greed. It's not even violence. But it is the root of all sin, which is pride and arrogance. And really only Christianity, as far as I know, teaches this idea. And obviously Judaism as well. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, the the great British scholar and writer, he says that pride is the uh, complete anti-God state of mind. The complete antithesis of God. He says it is the essential vice, the utmost evil. And I think that the reason he says that is because this thing that seems kind of harmless, uh, pride, is an extreme focus on the self. So whether you have someone that seems very, very kind, very, very nice, very, very meek and humble perhaps, the person of no influence at all, they could be eaten up with pride because they're so focused entirely on themselves. The, The self is almost deified with pride. Everything else is kind of forgotten. And according to this uh, famous Harvard psychologist, his name is Gordon Allport, 
He says a neurotic person is someone living in extreme self-centeredness. His or her misery represents a complete preoccupation with himself. The very nature of the neurotic disorder is tied to pride. Hypersensitive, resentful, afraid of appearing inferior in competitive situations, chronic indecision, a fear of being discredited, being over-scrupulous and self-critical, maybe attempts to show how praiseworthy one is. So you can see the subtle ways in which pride works. It's not necessarily that you want to be the center of attention. In fact, a very proud person may hate being the center of attention, may never even speak because they don't want attention drawn to themselves. The point of pride is that, that you're the center of your own consciousness, that your consciousness is about you all the time. And so the spotlight, if you think of it as a spotlight on stage, on an actor on stage, um, the spotlight is on you all the time. It's a condition in which the spotlight's on you. Um, and so there's this constant flow of thought where you're thinking, uh, how do I look to other people? Right now as I'm preaching, how am I appearing to you? Um, is, is he staring at me? Is she staring? What does that look mean that they're giving me right now? Was he just talking about me? Did, uh, did, did she mean something by that that I don't quite understand? That tone of voice. Did I just get insulted by him? Am I being left out right now? You know, that's the kind of thing that pride will make you think about. Those are the kind of thoughts that pride makes you think about. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller, who's a preacher in New York City. He says, you don't notice your body unless there's something wrong with it. I didn't come to church today saying, my toe feels just great tonight. And my elbow is working like a charm. The parts of your body did not call attention to themselves unless there's something wrong with them. The ego has something incredibly wrong with it. Yourself, your identity, it's always drawing attention to itself, how you look, how you treated. You can't get through the day without feeling snubbed or feeling ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on yourself. And so it's maybe hard for you to tie that description to what the Assyrian professional mocker said to Isaiah and to Jerusalem standing on that wall. But what I'm saying is these are very much related. They're both just pride. They're arrogance. And uh, sometimes it's boastful, sometimes it's very quiet. Um, But it not only makes uh, you miserable, it makes you forget about other people. It makes you unaware of other people. Um, I go to swim meets in the summer because my children are on the swim team. And there's usually about seven events or so that they're in, in the swim meet. There, there's over 80 events in the swim meet, if you haven't been to one of these things. So my, maybe my, I, I circle 12, you know, 18, 36, 38, 80, three hours later, and then 84. And the, the, the events they swim in, if you haven't seen swim meets, they take about 10 minutes total. So that leaves 170 minutes where I'm working on my sermon. And basically, the cheering for the other kids is just background noise as I'm kind of typing on my computer. And that's the thing about the empire is that you're you're very unaware of what's going on around you in the background. Other people are just kind of part of your story, Um, especially those who are forgettable. Those who are marginal, those who are poor, they just kind of fade into the background. Now, if there's something really important 
that, that's near you, then you're drawn to them because it, it shines the spotlight on you. But um, those people who don't bring anything to the table for you, the fatherless and the widow, as the Bible says, um, they just kind of get forgotten. And so Isaiah 9, 17, again, a few chapters back, Isaiah says they have no compassion on their fatherless. That's an orphan. They have no compassion on their widows because everyone is godless. And godless is simply a word that means God is forgotten. You're not thinking about God. It means that basically, you know, how God will become like a supporting actor. He plays a cameo role in the movie of your life. He comes in every now and then. He helps you out on your journey. But, but you are certainly the center of the story. And uh, he is not the center of your world. He's like a consultant for you. Uh, maybe a helper along your path. But you're not really orbiting around him. He's, he's kind of orbiting around you. And so when God is not pervading your consciousness... The poor are going to be forgotten. That's what Isaiah is saying. Again, he says they have no compassion on the fatherless and the widow because everyone is godless. In other words, they're eaten up with pride. They're arrogant. They're thinking about themselves. And so, again, if God is not really anything more than a part of your plot, then the poor certainly will not be much in your, in your story, in your movie of yourself. And so you got to ask yourself some hard questions. As we talk about the empire and think about the empire, especially in relation to Isaiah and this passage, um, questions I want to ask myself, maybe worth taking uh, these home and thinking about them. But um, do you really have time for people in your life? Do you really make time for people in your life to make it more practical who don't really uh, do anything for you? They don't really hold your interest. You know, they don't really um, make you feel better about yourself. Are you willing to give much time to those people? Or do you shy away from people who don't make your life more interesting and intriguing and uh, cool or hip or whatever word you want to use? Do you kind of shy away from them? Um, do you desire the company of people who don't really flatter you at all? Who, in fact, sometimes make you feel worse about yourself? And again, if, if the answer to those things is really no, um, then that, that's a symptom that the empire is acting on you. This is what the empire is about. It's, it's obsession with self. It's being uninterested in both God and those who are marginal. Because they're both around the outskirts. That's the empire. And I hope that hearing that makes you want it to come down. That makes you want it to be destroyed. That uh, both in yourself and in all the manifestations of it around you. That you... You yearn and hunger for the empire to come down. The gospel is not just that Jesus saves you from your sins and gets you into heaven. It's that he brings down the empire. That's what heaven is. It's the world without the empire in it. With the kingdom that sprouts up. Uh, again, verse 33. This is such good news. The Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. And not only that, but then they'll be replaced by the kingdom of God. And notice how different the kingdom is. In verse 1 of chapter 11, uh, it says, There shall come forth a shoot, just a little shoot, from a stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And, and notice how that description alone, uh, just the humility of it. Um, this is one of the startling things about the Bible, the way the kingdom's described with so much humility. It's... it's from beginning to end, 
is this kind of Nazareth principle. You know, what good comes from Nazareth? What kind of good thing? Well, that's where Jesus is from. And so from beginning to end of the Bible, it's this Nazareth principle. That these humble things, these lowly things are where the kingdom of God is working. Um, a shoot from a stump. I mean, think about a shoot from a stump for a second. Uh, there is a stump in our backyard that I, I hate. You know, stumps are not easy. You have to pay someone a lot of money to get a stump ground and taken out. There's a stump. It's not really worth grinding up and taking out. But it's incredibly ugly. It's inconvenient. And one of the most irritating parts of that stump is there's a little shoot. It's a little, a little tiny growth just kind of sticking out. And uh, I immediately want to cut that little branch off. I hate that little branch. I hate it whenever it branches out. And that's exactly, I think, why Isaiah is saying the kingdom of God is a shoot from a stump of Jesse. Now, if you know about Jesse, he's the father of King David. And certainly Isaiah could have written uh, someone, a son shall come forth from David, from the great King David. That's how Isaiah could have put it, but he didn't say that. Uh, he says it in a very humble way that this nobody named Jesse, he was just a farmer, and um, that this shoot from a stump of Jesse will come. I mean, if Jesse is the stump, then the shoot from the stump is the great, 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 great grandson of Jesse, who's Jesus, who was uh, more of a nobody than even Jesse. I mean, Jesus was born of an unwed mother. Poor, unwed mother, an at-risk, unwed mother. You could almost say he was born in a dumpster. That's essentially kind of what the, this manger scene is that we think of as this cute, cuddly thing with animals around it. It's more like a dumpster. And that's, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like the opposite of the empire. The future of the world, the future um, of our planet... The future of where the universe is going is to humility, um, to this world where the king will be not proud and he will not pander to the rich and famous. Look at verse three. He will not judge by what his eyes see, which would be what dollar signs, right? Um, in, in a lot of places in the world, that's what really drives justice is how much money you can give the judge. He will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. Namely, flattering words, um, words that make him feel better about himself. And so then you get a good judgment. Notice he will not uh, seek the spotlight. He will spotlight the poor and the overlooked and the marginal. In verse four, with righteousness, he will judge the poor. With equity, he will judge the meek of the earth. So this is a very, very countercultural king. You know, look up any ancient king. Google any ancient king. Sennacherib of Assyria is the one here. Um, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Julius Caesar. These emperors, they're not like this. They would not be described that way. But this king that Isaiah is talking about is, is so amazing. He's not even like the kings of, of Judah. He's not even like the kings of Israel. Because a lot of them fell into that pride and arrogant style of life. Um, this king is so humble that even the animals... He has this kind of reconciling, strange effect on the animals. A very odd part of the passage here, isn't it, about the animals? It's almost like St. Francis of Assisi and how he kind of t he supposedly tamed the birds, right, and the animals around him. They kind of gambled around, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, frolicked around him. I think there's actually some truth in, in the words of Gandhi. I don't know if you've heard this quote. I've seen it on bumper stickers. 
Uh, it says, uh, the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way that its animals are treated. I wouldn't go quite that far, but there's something in that because that's what Isaiah is talking about here. In verse 6, the, the wolf will, uh, literally it says sojourn with the lamb. And if you think about the word sojourn, that means that the lamb is kind of allowing the wolf to be in its, in its habitat and allowing the wolf to be like a sojourner or, or an, an alien or an immigrant in its habitat. So even that is flipped around where the, the lamb is allowing the wolf in. Uh, the leopard will lie down with a young goat. I mean, I love this passage. I used to hear this read, I think at Christmas every now and then, when I would occasionally go to church, back when I was not a believer. And I always loved this passage. I, I loved zoos when I was little. Um, safari cards, I had a lot of safari cards. And I always dreamed when I was little of how fun it would be if you opened all the cages and let the animals come running out and we all just kind of played together. I thought that would be an awesome thing. And Isaiah says the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat. Of course, these animals would no, normally kill each other. The calf and the lion. You know, my, my hesitation about the whole zoo scenario was that um, the, the snakes, that would be the one part I didn't really want to let out, especially the, the poisonous snakes like the adder, the cobra, the asp. But it's interesting, especially with like little children, as I was, I would not want those snakes mingling with children. But Isaiah says when the king comes, he's even going to be able to tame the snake. That the nursing child, think about how big a nursing child is. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So I don't know what entirely is going on here in this passage. It's very strange. But I do know there's some element of Jesus, this king that's like um, Robert Redford in The Horse Whisperer. That's kind of dating me. You know, it's back in, I think, the early 90s or the 80s. But I think it's based on a man who was a real guy who would actually tame horses by talking to them. He could tame horses um, by talking to them. And it's interesting that when Jesus came into Jerusalem at his coronation on Palm Sunday, he was riding on a wild donkey. Mark goes out of his way to say, it's a wild donkey. It's not a tame donkey. So Jesus sat on the back of a donkey that had never been ridden before, and he just calmly rode this donkey in. And I think that's a preview of one day when he would pacify all the animals. Verse 7, again, the cow and the bear will graze, the, the young will lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They're, they're very tame here. It's the opposite of someone who kicks their dog around. You know, you see mean dogs created by mean people. This is the opposite. The gentle, humble king pacifies these animals um, some people wonder whether animals are going to be in heaven or not. And, you know, I would say not only are they going to be there, they're going to be pacifists. They're going to be really, really nice to each other. Um, my dog is already a pacifist, but all animals are going to be like my crazy dog that won't even go after a cat. You know, um, now, to be fair to some alternate views of this passage, I, I am taking maybe the minority report here. Uh, some scholars would say... That this animal stuff is not literal. Um, it's too wild and crazy to be literal. So here's what one scholar said. They say, a lion's carnivorousness... I've never seen that word in print. A lion's carnivorousness is so fundamental to what a lion is that for that to be taken literally, a basic alteration of the lion's nature would be required. And therefore, it should not be taken literally. 
But what I would say to that scholar is, no, that's the whole point, is a basic alteration of nature is going to happen in the kingdom of God. And not just to lions, but to me and to you. Namely, that our pride is going to be taken out of us. It's, uh, it's going to make us humble like our king is. Um, notice the basic change in the nature of this king. When he comes, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's a very different kind of person. The, the spirit of the Lord is kind of hovering. You know, in, in Genesis 1, it says the, um, the dove hovered over the chaos and brought order into it. And uh, the dove of the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary when she gave birth to Jesus. And now this dove of the Holy Spirit is resting on this humble king, the shoot of Jesse. He's going to be animated by the Holy Spirit in a way that no human being has been up to this point. Uh, The Holy Spirit of this king. And that's the way to get from pride to humility. You can't will that, unfortunately. You can't make a resolution, tomorrow I resolve to be humble. Um, that, that doesn't work. It's got to be the spirit of the Lord that makes you go from being blind to the poor and the marginal to actually caring for them. It takes a supernatural element of the spirit of the Lord resting upon you as it rested upon the king. And he goes on to say the spirit of wisdom. But it's not a wisdom that's arrogant. It's a, it's a wisdom that is humble. The spirit of might it's an interesting word. It's not a, a, a might that is domineering. It's a, it's a might that is gentle, if you will. The spirit of knowledge, but not a knowledge that puffs you up. Uh, the spirit is of the fear of the Lord, which just means of deep reverence. Deep reverence is part of this spirit that rests upon the king. And I like to think of it, I like, the spirit of God is kind of like wind. I mean, that's what it means in Hebrew, ruach. Or in Greek, it's pneuma, which means wind like pneumatics. So uh, the spirit is like this wind that um, it rests on Jesus. Or I think another word uh, there could be it kind of blows through him. Spirit of the living God, you know, breathe through me, uh, blow through me. This is how I think a person is changed. Um, You can think of it like musical instruments, right, that are never played. They would be worthless. They would be all prepared for the wind to go through them and this beautiful melody to come out. But um, it's like my brother's clarinet in high school, which he bought. It's a really nice clarinet. It ended up at the back of his closet with clothes stuffed in front of it. So it was never played. It just sat back there gathering dust. And so many human beings die in that state where they have never been played by the breath of God. Huge tragedy where they've never experienced this wind animating them, as it did the stump of Jesse. This um, ability for God to actually play through you and make you different. That's the only hope. It's like the, um, the song from my, my favorite movie, one of my favorite songs, Gabriel's Oboe. It's what my phone plays if you call me. It plays that, that tune. Think about your favorite tune on a clarinet or a saxophone, um, on a trumpet, That's what it's like when the Spirit of God comes into someone. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. It's like Jesus can produce this haunting melody when he blows through you. And when you become a real instrument designed to do what you're made to do by God, that's when things change. And this haunting, beautiful melody comes out. And it's so so attractive 
and mesmerizing that um, people from all over the empire come in to catch it. Verse 11 is really astonishing that God is going to bring in people from Assyria. That's the, that's the main enemy, Isaiah. That's the one that hates you, right? And you're, why would Isaiah be saying that the, the Assyrians are going to come in? And why the Egyptians? They're the ones who persecuted God's people for hundreds of years, who enslaved them. He's saying from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. That would be North Carolina, wouldn't it, to Isaiah? From the coastlands of the sea, including proud Americans, they're going to come in and they're going to be, to be played by the king on this, uh, with this wind that goes through us. That's, that's amazing. The very nations that Isaiah calls proud, he's saying the spear will blow through them. When the, when the humble king comes, the kingdom will be a group of people that uh, are changed. They go from proud to humble because the spirit of God blows through them. And notice the, the thing that really draws the people in. And this is going to take us to the meal here. Um, in that day, the root of Jesse will be standing, it says literally in Hebrew. In that day, the root of Jesse will be standing as a signal. Think of that as a sign or a billboard. So this is, the, this is Jesus, right? The root of Jesse is standing as a signal for the people. Him shall the nation seek. So think about when, when was Jesus a sign that was standing for the people to see and be brought in? When did that happen? Well, John 12, 32 says when. It says, Jesus says, Satan, the ruler of this world, the emperor will be thrown out. Satan, the ruler of this world, the emperor will be thrown out. And I, as I am lifted up from the earth, will attract everyone to me and gather them around me. It's exactly what Isaiah was talking about 700 years earlier. And then Jesus ends by saying, uh, he said this to describe the way in which he was going to be put to death. Okay, so this is the sign, this meal, that draws in proud people from the empire. This is the sign that gives us the spirit. This is the meal that makes the music beautiful. Um, As Jesus said, um, on the night that I was betrayed, he says, "I, I came...